Chapter thirty three, part two of A Short History of Scotland by Andrew Lang. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter thirty three, The Last Jacobite Rising, part two. Meanwhile, Mr. Anderson of Whitborough, a local sportsman who had shot ducks in the morass on Cope's left, brought to Charles news of a practicable path through the marsh. Even so, the path was wet as high as the knee, says Kerr of Graydon, who had reconnoitred the British under fire. He was a Roxburghshire lad, and there was with the prince no better officer. In the grey dawn the clans waded through the marsh and leaped the ditch. Charles was forced to come with the second line fifty yards behind the first. The Macdonalds held the right, as they said they had done at Bannockburn. The Camerons and MacGregors were on the left. They cast their plaids, drew their blades, and after enduring an irregular fire, swept the red-coat ranks away. They ran like rabbits, wrote Charles in a genuine letter to James. Gardiner was cut down, his entire troop having fled, while he was directing a small force of foot which stood its ground. Charles stated his losses at a hundred killed and wounded, all by gunshot. Only two of the six field-pieces were discharged by Colonel Whiteford, who was captured. Friends and foes agree in saying that the prince devoted himself to the care of the wounded of both sides. Lord George Murray states Cope's losses, killed, wounded, and taken, at three thousand, Murray at under one thousand. The prince would fain have marched on England, but his force was thinned by desertions, and English reinforcements would have been landed in his rear. For a month he had to hold court in Edinburgh, adored by the ladies to whom he behaved with a coldness of which Charles the Second would not have approved. "'These are my beauties,' he said, pointing to a burly-bearded Highland sentry. He requisitioned public money, and such horses and fodder as he could procure— but to spare the townsfolk from the guns of the castle he was obliged to withdraw his blockade. He sent messengers to France, asking for aid, but received little, though the Marquise Boyer d'Anguilles was granted as a kind of representative of Louis the Fifteenth. His envoys to Sleet and Macleod sped ill, and Lovett only dallied. France only hesitated, while the Dutch and English regiments landed in the Thames, and marched to join General Wade at Newcastle. Charles himself received reinforcements amounting to some fifteen hundred men, under Lord Ogilvy, old Lord Pittisligo, the master of Strathallan, Drummond, the brave Lord Balmerino, and the Viscount Dundee. A treaty of alliance with France, made at Fontainebleau, neutralized, under the Treaty of Tournay, six thousand Dutch who might not, by that treaty, fight against the ally of France. The prince entertained no illusions. Without French forces, he told Danguillers, I cannot resist English, Dutch, Hessians, and Swiss. On October 15th, 26th, he wrote his last extant letter from Scotland to King James. He puts his force at 8,000, more truly 6,000, with 300 horse. With these, as matters stand, I shall have one decisive stroke for it, but if the French do not land, perhaps none, as matters stand I must either conquer or perish in a little while. Defeated in the heart of England, and with a prize of thirty thousand pounds offered for his head, he could not hope to escape. A victory for him would mean a landing of French troops, and his invasion of England had for its aim to force the hand of France. Her troops, with Prince Henry among them, dallied at Dunkirk till Christmas, and were then dispersed, while the Duke of Cumberland arrived in England from Flanders on October 19th. On October 30th the Prince held a council of war. French supplies and guns had been landed at Stonehaven, and news came that six thousand French were ready at Dunkirk. At Dunkirk they were, but they were never ready. 
The news probably decided Charles to cross the border, while it appears that his men preferred to be content with simply making Scotland again an independent kingdom, with a Catholic king. But to do this with French aid was to return to the state of things under Mary of Guise. The prince, judging correctly, wished to deal his decisive stroke near home, at the old and now futile Wade in Northumberland. A victory would have disheartened England, and left Newcastle open to France. If Charles were defeated, his own escape by sea, in a country where he had many well-wishers, was possible, and the clans would have retreated through the Cheviots. Lord George Murray insisted on a march by the western road, Lancashire being expected to rise and join the prince. But this plan left Wade, with a superior force, on Charles's flank. The one difficulty, that of holding a bridge, say Kelso Bridge, over Tweed, was not insuperable. Rivers could not stop the Highlanders. MacDonald of Morar thought Charles the best general in the army, and to the laymen, considering the necessity for an instant stroke, and the advantages of the East, as regards France, the prince's strategy appears better than Lord George's. But Lord George had his way. On October 31st, Charles, reinforced by Cluny with four hundred Macphersons, concentrated at Dalkeith. On November 1st, the less trusted part of his force, under Tullibardine, with the Athol men, moved south by Peebles and Moffat to Lockerbie, menacing Carlisle, while the Prince, Lord George, and the fighting clans marched to Kelso, a feint to deceive Wade. The main body then moved by Jedburgh, up Rule Water, and down through Lidsdale, joining hands with Tullibardine on November 9th, and bivouacking within two miles of Carlisle. On the 10th the Athol men went to work at the trenches. On the 11th the army moved seven miles towards Newcastle, hoping to discuss Wade at Brampton on the hilly ground. But Wade did not gratify them by arriving. On the 13th the Athol men were kept at their spade-work, and Lord George in dudgeon resigned his command, November 14th, but at night Carlyle surrendered, Murray and Perth negotiating. Lord George expressed his anger and jealousy to his brother, Tullibardine, but Perth resigned his command to pacify his rival. Wade feebly tried to cross country, failed, and went back to Newcastle. On November 10th, with some 4,500 men, there had been many desertions, the march through Lancashire was decreed. Save for Mr. Townley and two Vaughans, the Catholics did not stir. Charles marched on foot in the van. He was a trained pedestrian. The townspeople stared at him and his Highlanders, but only at Manchester, November 29th through 30th, had he a welcome, enlisting about 150 doomed men. On November 27th, Cumberland took over command at Lichfield. His foot were distributed between Tamworth and Stafford. His cavalry was at Newcastle under Lyme. Lord George was moving on Derby, but learning Cumberland's dispositions he led a column to Congleton, inducing Cumberland to concentrate at Lichfield, while he himself, by way of Leek and Ashburn, joined the prince at Derby. The army was in the highest spirits. The Duke of Richmond, on the other side, wrote from Lichfield, December 5th, If the enemy please to cut us off from the main army, they may, and also if they please to give us a slip and march to London, I fear they may, before even this avant-garde can come up with them. There is no pass to defend, the camp at Finchley is confined to paper plans, and Wales was ready to join the prince. Lord George did not know what Richmond knew. Despite the entreaties of the prince, his council decided to retreat. On December 6th the clans, uttering cries of rage, were set with their faces to the north. The prince was now an altered man. Full of distrust, he marched not with Lord George in the rear, he rode in the van. 
End of chapter 33, part 2. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.